Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. Four years ago, 95% of Appalachian counties voted for Donald Trump. And national journalists parachuted in to try to understand why. But what did they miss? You might have someone who you think would fit into specific voting category. You know, they might be very pro-Second Amendment, but at the same time, they may be really concerned about climate change. And we hear what happens when seven voters from different political views sit down together to talk over a virtual dinner party. This is going to make my head explode. (laughs) (laughs) Also, because it's Halloween, we'll hear one of our favorite spooky tales. And right as the young man rides under these interweaving branches, he hears an unearthly scream. And something jumps onto his back. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. It's very cool to be here, guest hosting inside Appalachia. I moved to the region two years ago to be the Folkways reporter for West Virginia Public Broadcasting. I grew up in Wyoming, the Rocky Mountains coal country. But I've come to fall in love with Appalachia in the years since I've been living here. Well, we're less than a week away from the election, and we don't know how our region will vote in the presidential race or even in the local races. On today's show, we're talking with voters across central Appalachia about the issues that matter to them. And because it's Halloween, we'll close our show with one of our favorite monster tales. I hope you'll stick around for that later in the hour. But before we get there, we start off in North Carolina, where reporters from two newspapers, the News and Observer and the Charlotte Observer, spent months interviewing people from every county in their state. They made 100 videos asking voters what's on their minds. Travis Long produced and reported for the project. I asked him why he thinks it's important to take the time to listen. Hey, Travis. Hey, how are you? Good. Thanks for coming on the show. So, The Journey Across the 100 Project looks at all regions in North Carolina, um, some of which are part of Appalachia, but some would be considered more East Coast. I'm assuming there were a variety of voters and views. Um, Can you tell me about some of the big takeaways? Um, Yeah, I think probably one of the more obvious takeaways for us um, was that there's definitely an urban-rural divide uh, here in North Carolina. However, uh, it's hard to pigeonhole rural, rural communities as, as being a monolith. There's a lot more nuance there. There's a lot of issues that um, maybe don't come up in more developed areas that do come up in, in rural areas. Even when we talk about things like infrastructure, in rural areas, there are still areas of, North, of western North Carolina and the mountains that that don't have broadband, that uh, don't have cell service because of the mountains. There's also the opioid epidemic that has hit the Appalachian community especially hard. And what was the impetus for the project? The, the, the idea was that we wanted to sort of talk to a really diverse cross-section of people and go to every single county, which there are 100 counties in North Carolina, and talk to, you know, people of all ages, people of all racial backgrounds, income backgrounds, uh, you know, minimum wage workers, retired people, pillars of the community, and, you know, people who might otherwise just be overlooked. Our state is really diverse. It has uh, a landscape that goes from, you know, the mountains all the way to the beach and uh, everything in between. And keep in mind that when we did this, we did this, the bulk of it, over six months in the later part of 2019. This was before COVID. Were you surprised by some of the feedback or the, I guess, the opinions and answers you heard from voters, um, especially in the Appalachian region? Yeah, I was. Um, You know, we would ask people to describe their community, you know, how connected they feel to the people that represent them you know, how the economy was doing for them and their family in particular, maybe the the top three issues or so that was going to influence how they vote in 2020. And then one of my favorite questions that really sort of 
elicited some really interesting answers uh, was what keeps you up at night? It's interesting too because you might have someone who you think would fit into a specific voting category. You know, they might be very pro Second Amendment, but at the same time, they may be really concerned about climate change. And I think it's really hard to just pigeonhole people into a set of issues, whether it be A or B, and expect that that's how people are going to vote. I was surprised to find that a lot of people don't vote straight ticket. And what were some of um, people's top three issues uh, that you can remember or or an example of um, some of the things that maybe kept people up at night? Yeah, I think um, a majority of people had a concern about the polarization of our current politics and how polarized things had become. You know, and then, then there are the sort of the, the everyday kitchen table issues, whether it be healthcare or whether it be agricultural concerns, in some cases, climate change, Second Amendment. And then, honestly, the answers were oftentimes really diverse, just depending on who we were talking to in the community. Um, you know, I think some of these more rural areas have um, a little bit of a distrust in the media just from national media kind of doing parachute journalism, showing up for a couple days, reporting on surface level issues and then leaving. And um, it's kind of made, at least in my experience, some people shy of even talking to a local reporter. So I, I'm wondering, you know, going into more rural counties, how did you feel like you and your team were received? And, you know, especially when you're talking about kind of a delicate issue. It was most definitely a challenge. Um, I think for journalists, uh, especially on the local level, uh, this is a really difficult environment to work in. Um, I think what you have to do as a journalist is to not be judgmental, um, to make people feel comfortable that you're going to listen to them and not judge them and that you're going to represent what they say accurately. Is there a county that stands out to you or a s specific experience or someone that you met that stands out to you? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm, I'm a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. I have uh, a lot of family that are on the uh, Kuala Boundary, the uh, Cherokee Indian Reservation there. That covers Swain and Jackson County. And so uh, those were particularly fun counties for me to, to do, just because it holds such a personal place in, in my heart. Well, it's funny you say that, because I actually have a question about Swain County. And it, that was one of the videos that stood out to me. I, you know, because it's part of Appalachia, but then also, like you're saying, the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Indians. And, and it feels like sometimes those are voices that get left out of the national conversation about Appalachia. And that video specifically, it featured the voice of Mary Crow, who you guys said was an environmental advocate in the area. Um, I have a short little clip I'd like to play and then maybe you can react to it if that's okay. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I have a deep concern um, about the climate change that is going on. Our crops are getting, you know, dried up. Um, the pr production of fruit-bearing trees are real small. I mean, there's just, you can see the effects of climate change just here. We have to be consciously aware of how we use and abuse Mother Earth. I think our people have a, a special connection to the land itself. It's in our language, it's in our traditions, it's in our way of life. The land is part of us and it's um, it's reflected in our community and, and the way that we conduct our lives the way that our tribe governs itself and the way that uh, um, we approach the world and so I think Mary's Mary perfectly summed up you know what some of our some of our concerns are and how we might see things differently than than we would if if we didn't have that connection to the land. I guess what do you hope the project accomplishes and what do you hope people take away from watching some of the videos? I hope people can watch these videos 
and see themselves in it. Um, I hope that they can see their family in it. Uh, I hope that uh, they can take away hearing someone's perspective sort of unfiltered and being able to relate to them. Travis, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. And thank you for having me. That was reporter and producer Travis Long of the News and Observer in North Carolina. He helped put together the Journey Across the 100 project. You can watch the videos on our website, wvpublic.org. The 2020 presidential election is just days away. While national polls show Democratic nominee and former Vice President Joe Biden ahead, it's hard to predict just exactly how voters will cast their ballots. West Virginia hasn't voted for a Democratic president since Bill Clinton in 1996, and some folks in the southern part of the state aren't expecting an upset this year. Jessica Lilly recently spent some time talking with residents to find out what issues are influencing their vote. Henry Hornsby has never been what you would say big on politics or elections. He's not proud to admit that he wasn't even registered to vote until the last presidential election in 2016. I've always felt like you worried, you worried about yourself and your own. You know, sometimes you hear who's won the presidency before West Virginia even votes. You know, and I just really never felt like, A, West Virginia even mattered towards the presidency and stuff. And secondly, I got to say that I really didn't think that the president of the United States would have much bearing on my success or failure in Beckley, West Virginia. Henry says he was proved wrong during the Obama administration. Henry owns a small business just a few yards from Robert Seabird Drive in Beckley. Henry's radiator. It's a family business he inherited from his parents. Henry spent a lot of time in the shop with his dad and the workers while growing up. Yeah, he always tried to, you know, treat everybody fair. Uh, tried to, he really took a lot of pride in his name, both, both by business and both just by m moral conduct. Um, you know, he told me okay. he spent 50 years uh, making his name and instructed me, that I can ruin it in a day and to be sure not to do that. And I, I've never forgot that. Before his father passed away in 2001, his dad diversified the family business and opened a car wash, apartments, and some storage units. Henry tries to honor his dad's legacy by staying in business, working hard, and being fair. I have one guy that's been here for 35 years. So they're, they're a little more than just your average employee. I mean, they, they're, they're our second family. You know, I know, I know their wives, their kids. And uh, when you have to, have to think about them not getting paid, that's tough. Henry is especially proud that he's never laid off anyone from the shop. Back in 2010, though, Henry says business dropped so much while Barack Obama was president that he had to consider layoffs. When you have to choose between paying insurance premium or buying groceries, that's a pretty tough choice, too. And I just you know, feel like something, something needs to be done uh, to make that more affordable and uh, for, for everybody. On top of this, Henry says new regulations on health care as part of the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, increased the price of insurance. Before the Affordable Care Act was passed, most private insurance rates were based on risk factors such as if someone was a smoker, their age, and so on. Now income is a factor into the cost. While Henry says he does believe the Affordable Care Act has helped people, it's been hard on small businesses and the working class. Everybody don't put forth the same effort, and I don't think everybody deserves the same reward without the same effort. So when you get to health care, and if I work hard, then I have to pay for my insurance and maybe some towards somebody else's, I just really don't think that's fair. The Hornsby's aren't the only ones voting based on health care. Brianna Wade says it's her number one issue that's influenced her vote. 
there's a lot of people in Southern West Virginia that need health care, you know, that may not have proper access to it, especially kids who in between the ages of 18 and, you know, 26 who are going to need to be on their parents' health care for a little while until they can get established. Brianna is a 28-year-old black woman. She spent her young childhood growing up in Welch in McDowell County. If uh, somebody didn't like you, it wasn't because of the color of your skin, it's just because of your attitude. She often longs for the community pride and support she found in Welch. I enjoyed growing up down in southern West Virginia. I wish there was more jobs in McDowell County because I would prefer my kids to grow up down there, kind of like I did, with playing with their relatives and kids in the neighborhood, that type of thing. She moved with her family to Mercer County when she was about 14 or 15. They've always heard that Mercer County is more racist than McDowell County was, and I saw that firsthand. But overall, it wasn't too, too bad. And it was also too different with the coal camps because I've always learned that with the coal camps, everybody's granddad like or dad worked in the coal mine, so everybody had to have each other's back. So that was that more sense of community in McDowell versus Mercer County. In neighboring Wyoming County, folks are concerned about health care, too. I know it affected our family personally because my sister had Obamacare and it was so expensive, it was really hard for her to to make the payments. That's Terry Smith. She's lived in Mullins in Wyoming County her entire life. And so it helped some of the poor people, but it didn't help, always help the working class. But that's not the only reason why she's voting for President Donald Trump. Like Henry Hornsby, it comes down to work ethic. And I think you need to work for what you get. You know, no one's supposed to hand you anything. But her number one reason why she's voting for Trump, Smith says, is Border Patrol. I really think that we could allow anyone into our country, but they need to come in legally. You know, we protect our own homes at night by locking doors, and we need to do the same thing for our country. Terry also says her emotions pull her to the Republican Party based on their stance on abortion. I don't believe in abortion. An innocent child has a right to live. And if we don't speak up for that child, who is? Because they can't speak up for themselves. But not everyone has made up their minds in the county. 35-year-old Amanda Sesco is a registered Republican, but says her views are more libertarian. Last time, she didn't vote for Trump, but for Green Party nominee Jill Stein. In hindsight, I just feel like I just wasted that vote on the last election. Sometimes the thoughts come in that, well, did I just throw this vote away for the sake of saying, yes, I voted? Um, And I I don't feel like anybody should ever feel that way because I do feel like everyone's vote is important and it does matter. But uh, unless you vote Democrat or Republican, it really kind of is a wasted vote. Amanda's also concerned about jobs. She's hoping to see more than just tourism and coal. She's looking for an even more diversified economy. For Kent McBride, a registered Democrat, he knows who he won't be voting for. I will not be voting for Donald Trump. He says he's not as worried about the economy of our country because there's more important things to focus on. I don't want my son to grow up in a world, my two sons to grow up in a world that gets worse than it is today. We're all gonna die one day. And it's not going to be about how big our 401ks are. It's going to be about, do you live a life that cares about other people? Do you take care of people around you? And I'm worried that the direction this country is going, we're going to be no better than the people that we've fought for years because we're going to become that country with that divide. And I think we have to make a change or we are walking that path. Back at Henry's Radiator Shop, Henry says business is up since Donald Trump took office and loosened environmental regulations. While that might mean more radiators to hoist in the shop, so far things are about the same in terms of health care. Honestly, right now we're, we're in pretty much the same boat we was four years ago with health care. It's hard to make a law that that that's good for everybody. You know, it's, there's always that uh, group. Uh, that kind of seems to get crapped on, you know what I mean? And and Obamacare really crapped on a lot of your small business owners, people that that was not provided health insurance through their companies. Henry's concerned that Joe Biden would just be more of what they saw under former President Obama. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jessica Lilly in Southern West Virginia. 
By the way, while southern West Virginia voted big for President Trump four years ago, recent analysis by the Ohio Valley Resource reveals that voter participation in this region was one of the lowest in the country. In fact, this was the case across much of central Appalachia. And we'd like to know why. Do you vote? If you feel strongly, hit us up on Twitter at In Appalachia. You can also see the rest of that data on our website, wvpublic.org. Up next, dinner guests from opposite sides of the aisle gather over a virtual dinner to eat and talk politics. And they find a few surprises along the way. It seems to me at the end of the day, we might all want the same things. We may simply disagree a little bit on which path to take to get there. That's the thing I love about talking with people from different perspectives is you find the commonality. We'll hear what happens when they mix food and politics in a virtual political discussion. Oh, and we'll also hear a ghost story from West Virginia. The ending is one you may not expect. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. You've probably heard it's a bad idea to talk politics at the dinner table. But what if it's not? Listeners to the podcast, Us and Them, got a taste of an experiment, a political dinner party. Us and Them is one of the shows we produce here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, and host Trey Kay likes stirring up debates between people on opposite sides of issues. Trey somehow always seems to find people who are willing to do this in a civil way. Now, because of the pandemic, Trey hosted his dinner party virtually over Zoom, and he invited seven guests who live in West Virginia or grew up here. They began by introducing the food they brought to the table. I have lasagna. Uh, can we see it? <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. Now, Jay, can you show us what you have? Yeah. T- tell us. I really like the. the can we see? See if I can get this in here. Right. Pinto beans, uh, fried potatoes, cornbread, and stuffed Hungarian peppers. Oh, wow. Oh, Yum. Man. <laughs> Isn't that great? I think we're all yeah. jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that looks great. Looks great, Joe Solomon. What, uh, do I see a plate up there? Well, I brought a, I brought some yogurt um, that was on sale at Kroger, and I put in, <laughs> I put in some raspberry preserve because it was plain. Usually, I just eat junk food and sugar, so this is like anti-inflammatory, you know. So that <laughs> felt like a good theme for tonight. Okay. <laughs> what about you, Joe Slack? Fat Dr Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> Those are bringing it home tonight. You're you're just bringing it all out, Joe Slack. (laughs) I asked my dinner guest to come prepared for contentious issues, but I made it clear we didn't want a brawl. No speeches or soapboxes, no winners, no losers, just conversation. We talked about weighty topics like race, politics, and the pandemic. I got the party started by asking my guests what it's been like for them lately. The pandemic has not personally been that bad for me, to to be perfectly honest. I've been able to spend much more time at home and don't go out. Jay Gould lives in rural West Virginia. Jay says he's a registered Republican who's owned and operated mining-related businesses since 1976. I kind of pay attention to where I'm at. And if it's not necessary, I don't go out. And the positive thing about it, personally for me this summer, was my youngest daughter uh, is military in Texas. And as soon as they could travel, they came up and spent two months with me this summer with my four grandchildren. And one thing I have noticed is everywhere I go, 
uh, whenever I do go, everybody is practicing social distancing. They they are where you where you are, like oh yes, yes, in all the stores and the uh, restaurants and everything. Everybody's practicing now. Not everybody's wearing masks, and uh, I don't wear one everywhere. But uh, the distancing, everybody's practicing. I turn next to Joe Slack. Joe is a registered Democrat who lives near Jay Gould. Joe works on the West Virginia Turnpike Road Crew and is a community activist. I ask if he's also seeing mask wearing and social distancing in rural West Virginia. There's a. Uh... Not so much mask wearing. Uh, a lot of people seem to, to be anti-mask, but I haven't seen a lot of trouble with people wearing them. They'll, they'll wear them when it's necessary. And, and uh, when it's not, you know, as soon as they leave the store, they, they take it off. And I, I do too. It, it drives me nuts, but I wear it because I don't want to get it myself and then give it to somebody else that can't fight it off. Right. But when you say anti-mask, can you describe you know, who's anti-mask and have, are they telling you why they're anti-mask? Well, just different people for different reasons. Some of them say they have breathing problems. Some of them say that the uh, pandemic's been blown out of proportion. Some say that their rights are being taken away. And I don't feel that way about it. I think it's more respectful to other people to wear the mask so that you don't infect them. Well, yeah, it's interesting you say that. I, I think all of you know I kind of split my time between New York and, and West Virginia. I'm probably here and there equal amounts of time. At one point here in Charleston, I went to a party and I showed up with my mask and the host said, are you really going to wear that? <laughs> you know. So, Steve, I haven't heard from you. Do you feel that people are taking it seriously here in West Virginia? Uh, yes, I think people are taking it seriously. We have within our membership businesses, higher ed, healthcare, and so those are probably organizations and people that are more likely to be cautious about the disease. So where I go, I experience a great deal of mask wearing. That's Steve Roberts. He's the president of the West Virginia Chamber of Commerce and considers himself a fiscal conservative, but more centrist on social issues. He's been a friend of mine for about a decade, and we are both part of a Bible study group in Charleston. My father is 94 and lives in a continuing care retirement community in Huntington. They have a great deal of acceptance of the need to wear masks. They have 250 people living in their community. They have at various times closed it down to visitors. And when you consider for very elderly people to not be able to visit with their children, grandchildren, or there's just a lot of isolation. We all know there are going to be people who either don't believe it or who forget and get too close and don't social distance. On the whole, though, my experience is people are paying very close attention to it. And that we in West Virginia have done a good job of taking care of each other. I will say, I think we're probably learning things through the COVID-19 experience about how we might better take care of each other. We've been listening to a virtual dinner party as seven people, conservatives and liberals, pro-life and pro-choice, all sat down with each other to break bread and talk. It's from the most recent podcast episode of Us and Them. In this next part of the show, the dinner guests discuss their thoughts about racism in our country. Host Trey Kay asked them how they feel on the topic of police brutality especially in the wake of the killing of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police. The conversation turned back to George Floyd. Here's an exchange between Jay Gould, a rural businessman who's a self-described compassionate conservative, and Joe Solomon, a progressive community organizer in Charleston. You were talking about George uh, Floyd's death. That was sickening. Literally sickening to see that on TV. It, it soured your stomach to watch it. But there's bad apples in everything. And he should have been removed from, from, from what uh, I've read how many, about. How many bad apples until the casket is rotten? 
Well, he should have been removed uh, years before. Yeah, sure, but so should many other. There was enough problems with him to have removed him years before, from what I understand. I mean, it's been going on for decades, and then Jim Crow before that, you know, and then there was oh, the, yeah, yeah. There's just I'm, a, I'm very aware of it, very aware of it, and uh, uh, it's, it's um, you know, there's a lot more to that than just the George Floyd, and there's more to it than police brutality. That's West Virginia Turnpike worker Joe Slack. I've talked to people that have wanted a fair shake, more level playing field. I've talked to people, talked to a man who said he wanted uh, that if he could do something, he would take the race boxes off of job applications. I've heard people say that they, they're confined to a certain area, to living in a certain area because of their skin color. And there's nothing right about any of that. Mm-hmm. I've even heard a man say, I want my dad to live where the white folk live. Is that a person of color? Yeah. And lived in that area his entire life. And he wants his dad to live where the white people live because he, he, he feels like that it's not as oppressed, that there's more benefit to it. And, you know, this is a man that's not, uh, he's not a racist. He just wants his dad to live more comfortable. And he don't feel like he can do it in the area he lives in because it's predominantly African-American. And I can see his point. So it, it goes beyond the George Floyd thing. And that's why I believe if the president would come out and say, listen, we're going to do something about this. We're going to sit down and try to figure this issue out and at least come at it with a constructive idea. Then I think it would settle down. That was Joe Slack, Jay Gould, and Joe Solomon, West Virginia residents. They were discussing how they think political leaders should be addressing racism in our country. As the dinner party wrapped up, the exchange took a surprising turn. How's the twins? Oh, well, we're homeschooling. They're, they're doing great, all things yeah. considered. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As our virtual dinner party came to a close, I wondered what the experience was like for my guests. How was it to engage with people they don't necessarily agree with? Rural business owner Jay Gould started us off. This has been fabulous. I'd love to have a longer discussion and a more laid-back atmosphere. Joe Solomon? I think it's been a great reminder that there's a lot of people around who have different opinions than me. I mean, I I wouldn't say I work in a bubble, but I've appreciated the chance to civilly disagree. I think I've made one or two snide remarks, but I've appreciated the grace in the conversation. Steve Roberts, did this feel like an us and them conversation? No, not too much. By the way, ditto. I certainly have enjoyed being uh, on this call with all of you. It, It seems to me at the end of the day, we might all want the same things. We may simply disagree a little bit on which path to take to get there. Karen. How did you find this conversation? Was it anything different than you expected? You know, we have a lot of people with differences of opinion, and um, I love that we can talk about it. I appreciate that because I think that as people can come together and talk and listen, that we can make a difference, a better difference. Margaret or Felicia, have you heard anybody say something that surprised you? I did learn just about the right to life movement. I did not know that it was like a life span movement. I really had only ever heard about it in relation to the abortion issue. And while I don't agree with the issue, I appreciate and support everyone's right to uh, to live their life and speak out for what they believe in. So I was very encouraged uh, by that because you know I deal with the children who are not necessarily valued after they have been born. And um, mm. it's so important that they are and throughout our lifespan. In some ways that might be a uh an opportunity for some commonality that you weren't expecting. Right, that I did not expect at all. So that was very good to hear from both Karen and Jay. So it was great to hear from all of you. And uh, yeah, you're definitely people I would like to spend more time talking with. I think it's uh, wonderful. Definitely a reunion. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Margaret, what, what about you? So I read folks' bios before joining the call. You know, I was kind of getting into the headspace of 
what might the call be like? And I immediately knew that all of you, like I, care a lot about West Virginia. We just come at solutions from different perspectives, but that's the thing I love about talking with people from different perspectives is you find the commonality, which we did multiple times. So Steve, I want to talk to you about paid family leave sometime. <laughs> We're wrapping up, but Joe looks like you, Joe Solomon. Yeah, I just wanted uh, to share that. I, Margaret, I'd love to work with you on uh, paid family leave too. I think that that work would be an anti-overdose policy as well as just human dignity policy because it reduces childhood trauma which sets us up for so much success, which which then connects with Felicia's work. I want to also say that it's one of my secret fantasies that we go out sometime with a bunch of pro-life folks to give out naloxone across Charleston's neighborhoods. And Karen, if you want to help make that happen, I, I mean, I'd be happy to work with you. Definitely an aha moment at my dinner party. Here's what's happening. Two people who might not agree on a lot, Joe Solomon and Karen Cross, a progressive and a conservative, find common cause to help others suffering from addiction. The idea, a campaign to hand out opioid overdose medication. Can the pro-choicers come Yeah, of course. And, and, you know, Mark, Margaret's been a, a stable column of support. Um, Margaret supplies all our condoms. Uh, we give out them by, by the hundred. <laughs> you guys are... You, this is going to make my head explode. <laughs> Reunion. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. This has been really, really great. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you. Everybody stay safe. Yeah. Yeah, stay safe. Take care, Jay Gould. Enjoy those uh, Hungarian peppers. I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm going to come to your house for supper sometime. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Everybody's welcome. I got yoga. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Great stuff. Thank you. Good night. Good night. It's encouraging the common ground that seven people discovered, even though they do disagree on some issues. We don't have time to listen to this full conversation, but I recommend you do if you have the time. The podcast is called Us and Them. Find it at wvpublic.org. You know, one thing I've been thinking about is that people are people. They aren't political categories. That's what I wanted to talk about with Gary Bentley. He's a former coal miner from eastern Kentucky who now lives in Lexington. He's written extensively about his time underground, including a blog series called In the Black. Hey, Gary, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. So we actually had you on the show a few years ago. You told us about your 12 years underground in the mines. And you talked about how you don't like how the national media portrays coal miners. Um, for those who didn't hear that episode, can you kind of walk us through that again and, and why you feel that way and why you started writing about it? Yeah, so, you know, I always see two sides coming from people that are outside the region or that aren't familiar with the coal industry and the people that worked in it or still work in it. You get the romanticized photos. A lot of people refer to poverty porn of black and white photos of these miners covered in coal dust, holding picks and shovels and their little metal dinner buckets standing outside of the coal miner on their front porch. But then you also get the side where it's the uh, Republican, you know, workers standing behind political candidates. And then you've got the opioid addiction issue that seems to, for some reason, find its way into all of the uh, coal industry portrayals of the people working. You know, it's a blend of all of that. And there was a wide variety of people that worked underground. And I worked in several different regions. Nobody actually fit into one specific category or mold. And I just wanted people to see what it was really like, what the people were really like, and some of the things that went on underground. Gotcha. And I, I, 
obviously that's a serious subject. I have some follow-up questions, but did I did I hear some chickens in the background? <laughs> you did. Uh, I live on a small, I call it a hobby farm. Gotcha. Uh, and we we have lots of chickens and they're more like pets. So they, uh, if they're out and I'm outside, they want to come close. <laughs> Um, we last talked, you know, four to five years ago, have your thoughts and opinions, have they morphed on the mining industry or changed? Yeah, I wouldn't say that my thoughts have necessarily changed. Um, I've seen a lot of things coming from whether it's distant friends or family members that have sort of changed my opinion on why a lot of those people maybe leaned in the political direction that they did. During the 2016 election, and and honestly still now, Appalachians and coal miners are often labeled as Trump country. And I'm wondering, do you feel like that's accurate or do you feel like there's more nuance? Yeah, I mean, it is complicated and... I'll just say it regardless of how people take my answer, but um, like if you look at the region as a whole, I'm going to say it is Trump country. But at the same time, there are a lot of people that live in that area that are not Trump supporters. They don't support the policies and actions and things that he has said. There are very open minded people that live in that region. And so to say that everyone from Appalachia is a Trump supporter or a supporter of those types of conservative beliefs is inaccurate. But stereotypes and labels exist somewhat for a reason. And when you look at the region as a whole and the majority of the population, unfortunately, I don't see it being that inaccurate. And and you say, unfortunately, where's your thought process coming on that? Well, you know, I hate to think that the area I grew up and lived in and I still care about would be so stuck in the beliefs of racism, hate, divisiveness, that they would still be so staunchly proud and supportive of Trump. I mean, what kind of issues are on your mind this election cycle? I mean, as a former miner, you had to move away from Appalachia for employment. So politically right now, my biggest concern is the economy and what's going to keep that area alive. And at the same time, it's the systemic racism. And, And you were saying that You've kind of over the years tried to understand where friends or family or former co-workers might be coming from in their values and, and why they might feel, I guess, resentment towards the left and feel um, strongly toward Trump this election cycle. I guess I would blame the majority of all of that on the media <laughs> because of a lot of the beliefs and feelings they have come from a place of ignorance, of just not knowing, not experiencing. And from the time I was young, it was always, you know, coal jobs, coal jobs, coal jobs. There was never any real talk of diversifying the economy. And so the majority of people really believe like coal is all they have. Like without coal jobs, we have nothing. And In my region of Appalachia, Christianity and Christian values were like probably the number one thing on people's minds when they go to vote. So back in 2016, then candidate Donald Trump, he promised to, quote unquote, bring back coal if he was elected. Um, But in fact, you know, coal production hit some of the lowest levels last year. Do you feel like there's a way to bring back coal? Like, do you think Trump could realistically deliver on that promise? Or do you think the decline is inevitable? Well, it's inevitable. It's coal has been in decline when they left the pick and shovel era of mining and brought in machinery. 
from that point forward, coal jobs have decreased every year. And, you know, it's all a play on numbers. So they may say, oh, there was a coal boom, let's say, in 1980. But in reality, the business may have raised a small bit and there may have been more coal being purchased. But the number of jobs never increased to the level it was 10 years prior or 20 years prior. Yeah, there may have been 800 new coal jobs in a year, but that doesn't account for the 3,000 coal jobs that were lost five years prior. That brings me to my last question is, I mean, Gary, you live and work in Lexington, right? Yes. Do, do you ever see yourself coming back to Appalachia? You know, I don't know that I would or could. I'm not saying I wouldn't because I would love to live there. But at this point in time, I could not go back because the lack of job opportunities. You know, I also got to think about the future of my daughter. You know, what would she do? Is she going to be forced to leave as I was? And, you know, until there is a drastic change in the economy and more job opportunities, I can't go back. And the majority of my friends that have been forced to leave the area just like I was, they say the same thing, you know, there's nothing that would allow me to go back. Wow. Is there anything else, I guess, related to what we're talking about that you wanted to say or add? So, you know, my biggest concern is I would like for people when they go vote, when they look at, you know, who they're going to vote for, that they would look for who is going to do the most for the area they live in and actually boost the economy and make positive impacts and changes because nobody can bring the coal industry back. Nobody can change where the coal industry is at this time. That was former coal miner Gary Bentley. You can read his blog in the black online at The Daily Yonder. And that brings me to our final story, which has absolutely nothing to do with politics whatsoever. For a few years now, we've had an annual tradition of asking you, our listeners, for your favorite ghost tales and legends. We have a lot of great storytellers here in Appalachia, and we love to celebrate that. Here's one story we received from a young woman in Randolph County, West Virginia. Like most great ghost tales, it takes place late at night some years ago. Hi there, my name is Caroline Hoyle, and I was told this story by a man in Montrose, West Virginia. He recounted it as a story that he had been told as a child about his grandfather. The story begins in the early 1900s on the first cold day in autumn. His grandfather, then a young man, left his wife and children to make a trip into town for supplies. So on horseback, he rode four miles to the closest town of Elkins. While he was in town, he stopped for a drink, which landed him coming home much later than he expected. Now this road was rough then, and it remains that way today. So when he reached the neck of his very own holler, he was very weary. And at the mouth of this holler, where it meets the road, there are these gnarled ancient trees on each side, and their branches form a kind of canopy over the road. And right as the young man rides under these interweaving branches, he hears an unearthly scream. And something jumps onto his back. The thing is heavy and is sinking two sets of long claws into each of his shoulders. The horse thunders up the narrow road going faster and faster. He struggles to stay on while trying to look over his shoulder to catch a glimpse of the great beast. But when he does, all he can see is a great black mass and two giant glowing red eyes. 
he is drenched in terror, clinging to his horse, when suddenly the road makes a sharp right and the creature flies off of his back and straight up into the air. And before he can even breathe a sigh of relief for escaping this beast, he sees that his entire farmhouse from floorboard to ceiling is on fire. And his wife and children are nowhere to be found. And that is where his story ended. So horrified, I asked, what happened? What was it? It must have been Mothman, right? A great beast with glowing red eyes that foretells a tragedy, right? He smirked at me and said, Mothman ain't real. That, that was a panther. You know, like a spook. And it was then that I realized that he hadn't been trying to tell a ghost story. He was imparting wisdom upon me that had been imparted upon him. It was that the horrors that we face in our own hearts are much more frightening than the Mothman. Caroline tells us that since she recorded that story a few years ago and she heard it on our show, she was inspired to start performing at storytelling events in West Virginia. In a way, I think the message of Caroline's story rings true more than ever this year. She said the horrors that we face in our own hearts are much more frightening than the Mothman. 2020 has brought to life a lot of our own fears. Losing our loved ones, losing our jobs, being isolated from our families and friends, and even losing the semblance of a daily routine. So as the election approaches, tensions are high, and perhaps we're more divided than ever. But as we heard on our show, people in Appalachia can come together over a virtual dinner or just by listening to each other with an open heart. Till next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, The Soaked Lamb, Michael Lipton, and Tristram Lozaw. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby and Glennis Board edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce our show this week. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.